Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, bro. It's Russo'sBrand.com. Get the real shoot for the most controversial personality in pro wrestling, Vince Russo. Stevie Richards Fitness. Hey, don't you think it's time for a band new you? Head over to StevieRichardsFitness.com and join the SRF resistance today. ProWrestlingTees.com. Get the coolest merchandise from your favorite independent pro wrestling talent worldwide. Head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support indie wrestling today. The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. Kill, feel, feel, but frustration. Treasury with no documentation. Disease led through Lloyd. Will you witness? There's no one testifies. Well, I'm the cardio disease. Rage burns a brand new degree. You train your mouth with mistrust. Now it's time to push. Fuck you and all your insecurities. Be my taste to test my abilities. Every creature dug your hole too deep. Stretching the walls. No escape is too steep. Ready with the bows. Get out of my way. Run with the bulls. It is Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, and you are tuned in to Running with the Bulls, episode 3, here presented by the HTM Podcast Network Online, hittingthemarks.com, and Hameen Media Online, hackerhameen.podbean.com. My name is Jargo, I'll be your host for the day, that's my tag team partner, he's the man on the wing, he's the real RBV, Rick, welcome back to your show. When you're up in Rome, New York, you go see Demetrius for some donut dipping. But when you need to go running with the Bulls, it's MJ and Ricky Pippen. Back again, Jargo. Uh, week after week, this thing has just got me hooked. I am so enthralled by everything that's going on. But I got I got to put over episode five. The first hour of this past Sunday was my favorite thus far of the series. I, I would be inclined to agree with you. I thought episode five was fantastic. And on the other hand, I thought episode six was just kind of flat. Like it, it absolutely serves its purpose. It fills in a lot of gaps, but I, I was not real impressed by episode six. Well, I think there might've been a, a, a number of things there and kind of actually before we took the air here this afternoon, I had a great conversation with Adam Rivera, a good friend, uh, Sin, Adam Rivera, and we were just kind of going back from everything that we're kind of that how he's perceived this, you know, the entire series as opposed to what we have been talking about. And I think this week really exemplified his, you know, maybe his concerns or maybe a bit of the turnoffs that he's been having because he was like, man, they should have just called this the Michael Jordan show. And this this week. Although, and see, I think that's just to maybe the untrained eye. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not a knock there on Rivera, but I mean, if you go really deeper into this thing, it was about much more than Michael Jordan. But who is the focal point? Who is the face of this franchise? And believe me, even way back then when they get access to this team, uh, I know you and I have been talking about for weeks, man, we, we want to know what, what Armstrong was thinking or what's up with Cartwright and Grant. That's not where those cameras and that production team are going. Yeah, absolutely. And dude, BJ Armstrong hasn't aged a day since like seventh grade. My God, BJ looks great, doesn't he? Uh, I think he's got like that Benjamin Button thing going on. I think he looks younger than I remember him. Absolutely crazy. I guess all the pressure. I guess all the pressure to playing in the league and running with Jordan and Pippen and those great Bulls teams. I mean, I guess when he had was free, free at last. Maybe he was able to relax, and you're right. I mean, he still looks like a high school kid. 
One of the guys that we will talk about when we get to episode six is Charles Barkley. Uh, did you happen to catch Barkley on the herd yesterday with Colin Cowherd? Uh, wasn't able to catch him on the herd. Actually, I'm going to have to go look that up now that you mentioned it. I didn't even know he was going over there for a spot with Colin. Those two hook up. It's always highly entertaining. Uh, but I did enjoy the conversation that he had with Van Pelt immediately following the last dance on Sunday as they kind of do their their post-game show over on the Sports Center edition. Well, shout out to Chuck because he's obviously been listening to Running with the Bulls on the HDM Podcast Network and hackerhameen.podbean.com because he brought up something I brought up in the very, very first episode. How come we're giving Jerry Reinsdorf a pass on all this? That This is all Jerry Reinsdorf. They want to blame Jerry Krause. That's all fine and dandy. But why are we giving Jerry Reinsdorf a pass on all this crap? Shout out to you, Chuck. I said it first. Yeah. But I, I still think, again, you know, it's about the lore in the city. And if you are the owner, you can remove yourself a little bit from that because who is the direct contact with the players there? Who's the one that is having to go, you know, come into the office, has to make those, you know, make, make those hard announcements. And ultimately, as we've seen it, who's out there in front of the press? Very adamant. This is, you know, we're not, Jackson's not coming back here. And, and it was the owner who said, okay, maybe, maybe that's a little too harsh. We'll go one more year. And then, and then actually we haven't had much talk of it inside of the series yet, but in the reality situation is there was talks for another extension. Uh, so it, it is uh Krause that has, you know, that is more, gets more of that heat there. I, I'm curious how much of that they get into. Uh, let, let's go ahead. Let's start off with episode five, uh, which I have dubbed Republicans buy sneakers too. That should have been the name of this week's episode. Um, but while the whole series is about Michael Jordan and while it's about those 90 Chicago Bulls, this episode starts off with Kobe Bryant. Um that little Laker boy is going to take everyone one-on-one. That, that was one of my favorite quotes in this entire episode. Um, and there's a lot of comparison between Michael and Kobe. But, Rick, what I really felt like this was doing was supplying context for the 92 finals against the Portland Trailblazers. Because everything that Michael's saying about Kobe in 1998 is exactly what Michael Jordan did to Clyde Drexler in 1992. Well, there's it's so much more as, as you're talking about this. Yes, on the surface, the focal here is Mike. But when you start to peel those layers back and dig deeper, which has you know been the, the driving force behind this entire series, there's a lot underneath there. And, and you're exactly right here. First seven minutes of episode five, the the two hour run this week, uh, very emotional, very moving. Uh, I know that you were in transition from sleep to work and all that, and I told you, man, it's you know hold on. It's going to get you on the edge of your seat. I mean, I almost broke down there. So it was highly emotional uh, in the seat this year. But even going further back to set you up with what happened there with, with like the trailblazers and that, that was the attitude, you know, the spotlight and the perception of Kobe was exactly what we saw going back to episode one of the last dance and how the league perceived Michael Jordan. And you could see that, okay, there was a little bit of transition because some of those individuals knew like shit, you know, they didn't think Michael had a chance. This kid looks like Michael. Is he going to, is he going to be the next one to evolutionize this game? Yeah. It, it was crazy to watch Kobe, especially now knowing what we know. Um, but the other th- thing that really stood out to me was when Kobe was talking about Michael 
And he makes a comment about how, you know, he's like my big brother. When we saw Michael speak at Kobe's service, he talked about, you know, the relationship between Michael and Kobe and how, you know, that was my little brother. Those two were a lot closer than I think anybody ever realized. Yeah, and it's something that I think was just very personal to them because it didn't get a lot of publicity. It, you didn't really, you didn't regularly hear about that. And I think that was maybe part of that mentorship was Jordan saying, hey, you don't need me to be a part of your brand. Maybe he knew inside he didn't need Kobe as part of his brand, but they understood the, the woes and the ups and the downs that the other was going through. And you even got to believe, you know, you look outside of basketball, one of Jordan's, you know, closest comrades, confidence, whatever, friends, Tiger Woods, who, if you believe me, when we're talking about the drive, that fire, that desire that's inside of Michael Jordan, you look at other individuals like that. I mean, just the aura, the vibe is somebody around a Kobe and a Tiger Woods. And it's so weird because their careers are so parallel. You know, like Michael was incredibly accessible to the media. He would go out, he would do every press conference, and then the whole gambling thing would blow up, which we'll talk about throughout this episode. With Kobe, it was the sex scandal in Denver, you know, and immediately after both of those scandals happen, what's the response? Boom, I'm cutting off the media. Probably the best thing they could have done, honestly. Yeah, well, and I, I think you, when you're riding that cloud nine and you're on top of the world and in Everybody loves you and they're building you up, building you up. This is, you know, we see it so regularly now just because of how we're connected through social media outlets and everybody kind of has that platform. It, it, again, you know, some people, oh, it, it's the devil. It's the worst thing, social media. But I tend to, you know, I go to that other route. Like, no, you know, it brings us together in any case. I mean, there's positives and negatives with you. It's how you use it. And But now you do have individuals, as we would learn throughout the course of these episodes here in the Jordan rules book. I mean, there is somebody there, the more successful you are, the, the more greatness you are driven to achieve. There's somebody chasing you, looking to stab you in the back to bring you down and, and tear that all apart. And the sad thing is it's just human nature. Yeah, it really is. And it wasn't just Kobe. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. After we talk about Kobe, we go back in time to, the beginning of the brand Michael Jordan and Rick there's a name mentioned here that I I'm not sure that I ever knew his name we, we obviously knew that Michael had to have an agent but his name is David Falk um, David Falk probably one of the most undersung underappreciated people in the history of the NBA because he completely changed everything with this Nike deal um, signing Jordan to Nike was not the easiest thing in the world uh, Jordan wanted Adidas. Uh, Converse was the biggest brand in the world at the time. And hell, Nike was still making track shoes. That's what they were known for at the time. It wasn't basketball. The Nike deal absolutely changed everything. And it wasn't so much the Nike deal. It was the way that it was presented because David Falk wanted to change things from, you know, that team game and, and the brand of sneaker more so to the brand of the player and start marketing basketball players like their tennis players, like their boxers, as opposed to the traditional basketball marketing. Rick, how is David Falk not like a professor of marketing at USC at this point? Absolutely. We talk about those unsung, those unnamed maybe heroes, greats, Hall of Famers of sports, of business, of society. I mean, 
after hearing this and learning this tale and now more intrigued than ever to really dive into this thing, believe me, this is what really jumped out to me in this episode, which made it my favorite is going into the marketing aspect and seeing what David Falk brought to the table to have this vision. And it's so dynamic and unique in his presentation going into the Jordan household. And imagine this, you know, and laying it out there, you know, where you, you're exactly right. I mean, you've got Adidas is the, the street cred. You know, with the pop culture and in, in the African-American community and all that. And then you have Converse who just pretty much at that time, they have the NBA on lockdown. Any star that is a star is signing with them. They're working together in all the commercials. But not just go in there and say, hey, you know, we feel positive in a, in a direction here with this Nike team. But the whole layout, the you know what? We're going to blow this thing up. We're not going with a team atmosphere. You are our brand. It's about you, Michael Jordan unproven commodity and even just sit there and say, okay, well, who's your, cl- who's your clients? Who have you represented in major sports? And he's laying out tennis players. Yeah. Like Arthur but, Ashe, you know? Yeah. I mean, no, no names to, you know, to laugh at here, but come on. I mean, we're talking, you know, NBA kind of caliber who, you know, is there trying to look for, you know, merchandising deals, much like the NFL baseball's the, the King Kong of the time. Uh, tennis golf, those things are distant in the pack there. Uh, but to come there with this, you know, this this whole new strategy that you're ready to launch on the sports world. I mean, it, it's magnificent. It was brilliant. Nike projected roughly three million dollars in sales. They ended up with one hundred and twenty six million in the first year. I would say that that investment absolutely paid off. But, Rick, I think what, what got left out of this is the, that infographic that you sent me a couple of days ago. Jordan's still blowing everybody out of the water. The Air Jordan brand is bigger than LeBron James. It's bigger than Kevin Durant. Even the the modern day social media players, everybody wants a pair of LeBrons. But for every single person that's buying a pair of LeBrons, it's like four people are buying a pair of Jordans. Uh, All right, so we got Michael Jordan at the top of this. This is the 2019 fiscal year. This is gym shoe sales. What are we talking here? 20 years after the fact, or, you know, after he, even after he left the Wizards. Yeah. 18. That, that was what, 2003? Yeah. All these years later, Michael Jordan, 130 million. Uh, LeBron James, 32 million. Kevin Durant, 26 million. Steph Curry, 20 million. Now, I know you're not a big sneaker guy. Do you own a pair of Jordans? I do not have any now, but hey, I mean, I think we all remember, you know, that they were, it, it was a social status. I mean, it, it kind of set you apart if you had them. I, hell, I've got three pairs right now. I think the only shoes I own more of than Jordans are Gary Payton's because I just, I love the Gary Payton shoes, which they actually just reissued, by the way. Oh, it's, it's kind of funny what we are, as we're going to start talking about some of the other superstars that come to light and play a role through these, through these shows. Uh, obviously, man, everybody loved their Jordans, no matter what edition you had of them. But my favorite shoe was a Barkley. Ah, uh, yes, we will talk about Chuck here in, in a little while. Uh, but it, as much as we talk about David Falk in the rise of Michael Jordan, there's another guy we got to talk about, too. A very, very young Spike Lee not only directing the commercials, but also appearing in the commercials. Now, Spike Lee was not the everyday household name that he is today in 1985, but 
Rick, I, I still remember these commercials like they were yesterday. And I mean, I was six. I was six, and I still remember all those commercials. They, th that was just iconic. And to put Spike in the commercials, especially in that New York market, in the Chicago market, in the Houston market, in the Los Angeles market with a large urban population, they all knew who Spike Lee was already. And it just gave Jordan even more street cred. That's what I said. You know, so many people would kind of look at those things and say, oh, you know, that's, you know, Spike giving himself the rub from Jordan. All that. No, it, it worked. It was a two way street here uh, that helped establish Jordan, you know, inside. Because, you know, even because every time that you saw Jordan, how he carried the brand, you know, it was the suits. It was the high class. I mean, he's the, a Ric Flair esque personality inside the NBA. Now you take him into these commercials here, into that different element where, yeah, he is. And he's just in his practice clothes in most of those. No, it isn't the fancy uniform in front of the thousands and thousands. And he's got the guy, he's got Spike there presenting that character, giving a little bit of that cred and just, you know, the imagery in there as well. I mean, because the difference in styles between Spike and Mike. Well, and it's one of those things, too, where you can watch that commercial and see Spike Lee's fingerprints all over it. The Spike Lee that we would come to know over the course of the next 30 years. Spike is one of the more... Um, artistic directors to where you can just put in a movie and as you're sitting there watching it, you're like, oh, this is a Spike Lee joint. I don't even have to look and see who the director was. This is clearly a Spike Lee joint. You a Spike Lee guy? Uh, not really a big movie buff, you know? You know that. Valid. Valid. He doesn't seem like he would be uh, making your kind of films, you know? Just, just an observation. What do you mean? <clears throat> what do you mean, you people? What do you mean, white people? <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the glide air Jordan versus the glide coming off of the 1991 finals. The bulls looking to go back to back and one of the more forgotten players in NBA history, Clyde Drexler, um, right in the heart of his prime. And even Michael says Clyde was a threat. I'm not saying that he wasn't a threat, but me being compared to him, I took offense to that based off what I was playing at the time. It wasn't even close. And I attacked him. Every night. And this is a subject that we saw with Kobe at the beginning of the doc. We, we see it throughout Jordan's entire career. He would launch on to that one guy and be like, I'm going to embarrass this fool. He did it to Tony Kukoc in Barcelona. And this is a lot of as well as Jordan inside of, of needing to fuel that fire himself where he, he's just looking to build those chips on his shoulder because that's what kept that competitive drive going. And we regularly are seeing this as a, you know, this is a reoccurring theme through and through here that he needs some, even if it's something as simple as the segment where the, the, the security usher is taking him to task, you know. 20 bucks, you bet. Yeah. And you can see, even in that brief moment, the frustration that's beginning to settle in on Mike Jordan because he's calling security on security to get these guys uh, out even, of here. Even when he's having fun around it, you can just get that energy. You can see it in his facials, that body language. This is not sitting well with him. So, again, you know, he's taking this at Clyde. OK, I, I need something. And I don't, maybe it isn't something that he realizes he's doing. It's just embedded in him. He has a competition uh, problem. And he has to create it at every single angle that he gets. One of the things I took away from this, I immediately, you know, I'm sitting there watching and you go right to the Google machine and you start 
looking up statistics and career trends for Clyde Drexler. I would have loved to hear a lot more or anything from him. I mean, we're talking about now Jordan's, you know, he's taking offense, taking issue that people are comparing them. What did this mean for Clyde Drexler? I mean, taken a year before in the draft, an entire reason that the, the, the Trailblazers passed on Michael Jordan is because they had Clyde already in place. It made complete sense at the time. And it sounds it sounds absurd to even say that in 2020. But when you actually look at the numbers, I mean, Drexler averaged 25 points a game, 6.7 assists, and 6 rebounds that season. Michael averaged 30 points a game, 6 assists, and 6 rebounds. So Michael was 5 points better a game than Clyde Drexler. But it, make no mistake, Clyde was no joke. No, and you look at these teams too, and and not just exactly you know lining up the names on the roster, but where the franchises were going. I mean, they were in similar places, you know, both towards the seller, looking for those breakout players, going with a different philosophy to rely on somebody, you know, a smaller player in a big man's game. Uh, instead of in the East where you're you're ultimately looking at the Celtics and then the eventual emergence of the Pistons, you know, there you've got showtime that you have to overcome. So, I mean, Portland's trying to, no pun intended here, blaze that same path that we saw in Chicago and Looking back at, you know, the conference championships and the finals and all that, I mean, it was Portland getting closer and closer and closer, trying to overcome that mountain as the Bulls did. I mean, they finally get there into a a series, into a championship series with them, and it's Jordan who does knock him down. And ultimately, as you said, Clyde's not going to be erased and forgotten, but he becomes a cliff note through those, you know, through that era. Here's an incredible, incredible status. I was kind of looking at the history of the NBA championship and where these other hall of fame, legendary players kind of fell, especially Clyde. Did you realize in the entire eighties, there was not a, uh, it wasn't, maybe it's like 89 or 90 that the NBA finals did not have a game played in Boston or LA. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Almost an entire decade there. I think it would have been like 79 to 89 or something like that. Yeah. No, as I think about it, that's, actually legit that's absolutely crazy hadn't even thought about it in that context i mean look at i was just kind of blown away like holy shit (laughs) but you know we talked on episode one what would have happened if michael would have been drafted by portland he would have been clyde drexler i mean it was just when you and it's not even drexler's fault when you look at the city of portland versus the city of chicago one of them is an international media market and the other one is portland like, why does Clyde just not get any of that respect? It just feels like Clyde is one of the most forgotten about people throughout the course of NBA history. Is that just because he spent so much time in Portland? Yeah, I think it's exactly what it is. You, you go to that market and they didn't have the whole franchise. And it does take everybody kind of doing their role, playing their part to give you this ultimate opportunity. And I, I still think it's a little bit unfair for us to go back and say that he would have been Clyde there. I, I Ultimately, you got to believe Jordan, what did set him apart was that that internal flame, that that extra drive. So that inside, so, I mean, it just, but would he be that great? Uh, if it could have been roles reversed, I mean, maybe we are still talking about Michael Jordan as one of the greatest, but what kind of success would Clyde would have had if he had that opportunity in Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, if you have not went back, if you're part of this younger generation that never actually saw Michael play live, go back and watch those 92 finals. Um, because if you just watch this documentary, you would think that the Bulls just beat the ever-loving shit out of the Portland Trailblazers. Rick, that was not the case. It took the Bulls six games to get rid of Portland. That team was really freaking good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I was talking about this was them trying to get to that moment. A lot of people thought, hey, this is Portland's chance to, to be one of those teams to break through. Yeah, it just it never really happened for him. And then, of course, Clyde would get a couple of rings. But he would have to go to Houston and team up with Hakeem Elijah one to get him. And, you know, when you got Hakeem, well, that, that certainly I, helps. Outside of that, I mean, you take two immediate Hall of Fame players like, you know, Clyde and Elijah on there. But that entire team was, oh, it was so ridiculous. Stacked. Absolutely ridiculous. That was Big, like, shot. Big shot Rob. You had Cassell. It was, it was oh, kind man, of the birth of the, the super team, really. I mean, like because all those guys just converged on Houston. It's not like Houston built that team through the draft. Well, they, they knew the timing was right. And I think – I know we're going to get to it a little bit here, but I, I don't think anyone thought Jordan was going anywhere for long. So it was we need to act now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about Barcelona. Uh, the, the gold medal in Barcelona, Rick, we have talked and we've talked about this long before we even started running with the Bulls, that when did this era of players, you know, it, it, it's it's not about the rivalry anymore. It's not about Los Angeles versus Boston. It's it's more of an individual thing and everybody's all boys and it's just become the fans now hate one another. It wasn't like, you know, the Chicago Bulls hate the Detroit Pistons and the Detroit Pistons hate the Chicago Bulls. And we wondered where that started. I don't know why it never clicked to me. It started in Barcelona. And see, I, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. Uh, you know, to me, what I really took away from this was, was so amazing. Is yes, I mean they are there. They're. It's kind of like their family there. I mean, you're representing the United States. They're doing something that had never been done there for basketball before. Such a unique opportunity. Uh, we could talk about – we could run a whole nother series of spinoff podcasts here about what that did for the globalization of the game of basketball, the NBA inside of itself. Uh, but one of the things that, that, that really hit me through this part of the, of the episode was the, the dynamic of the relationships – how they could be, okay, there was such this respect, but there was almost that resentment and rage against one another's. And I think, as you know, as we're talking about Charles Barkley, and I'm sure that this was illustrated when he's talking to Colin, and it certainly was on when he was with Van Pelt on the post show, was uh, you could feel the real disappointment. And there was nothing he wanted more to gap off anything else in his career than to, to have done that, to be able to beat the Bulls and how personally he took that, that he failed, especially in that game one, where he had to believe that at that point, that was the swinging force there. That was the deciding factor. They were done, even though they did fight back. Yep. But to have, okay, I, and I think we see that. We see them perfectly, perfect example in the episode here is where you have, you have Bird and Magic, who were playing different roles there, but you know they are they're having fun, and you see people interacting with Mike in other ways. But then we go to the court in the practice game, and that is probably the most intense game that was played over in Barcelona in that in that time period. Yeah, I know. It, it, we're we're going all Allen Iverson here, and it's time to talk about practice. Um, 
seeing the video footage of some of those practice games and especially Magic and Michael just going at it. And Barkley talked about it with Colin. You know, it wasn't just Magic and Michael. It was also, you know, you, you had, you know, Elijah one and you would have Patrick Ewing just down there, just absolutely balling, going at one another, trying, because it was almost like we're going to throw all of these alphas into one pot and see which one comes out. Just happened that one person was Michael Jordan. I don't think there was any question after the 92 Barcelona Olympics that Michael Jordan was the best player in the world. Yeah, I mean, there might have been some, a little wiggle room for debate. I mean, at that point, uh, he's firing on all cylinders. This is something I actually want to talk to you as well as they were on. It might have, yeah, it was on the on, – no, I think it was in the series because he's on both that and the Van Pelt thing where Michael Wilburn was talking about the best years for these Bulls. And he 92. still believes that 92 was the best year. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're talking and right around there. That's where you got to believe Jordan's at his absolute best. Yeah, and, and that's where everything is riding high. Everybody loves you. I mean, we just had all this conversation about the the brand, the endorsements are taking off, that the shoe deals, McDonald's. I mean, everybody wants a piece of Michael Jordan. Be like Mike. This is where this grew from. Everybody wants to talk about that seventy two and ten team, like they they were the greatest team ever. Uh, people want to talk about that Warriors team that won seventy three, and how they might be the greatest team ever. It was the ninety two Bulls. There was something about the chemistry to that team that was just absolutely incredible. And to me, it was really the rise over those bad boy Pistons teams. Like that team was so close. They were so in sync. I don't think anybody beats the 92 Bulls, including the 97 Bulls. Yeah, I think it's what it is. You know, it's that transition from the league itself. As you said, you know, obviously the King Kong that, you know, at that period is the Pistons, but you still have got on the back end of the Celtics dynasty. You've still got the showtime kind of lingering there. It's just, you still got the Cavs are so hot. Portland's in the race. I mean, there's so many teams that are hungry for that spot here. And this is where the Bulls, I mean, they, they really pun into it, you know, take it by the horns. Whereas you get into that 72 and 10 season, there was a lot more parity throughout the league. Uh, and that's what really made the Bulls so freaking good. It, it, the, the level of competition for that Bulls team just wasn't on par to what they were facing in 92. Absolutely. Um, another guy that they talk about here is Isaiah Thomas. We, we finally got into Isaiah Thomas getting left off of the dream team. Isaiah Thomas is still pissed about this thing. But Rick, for years, they have put this on Michael Jordan that Michael Jordan did not want to play with Isaiah Thomas. One thing that kind of has been lost throughout history, neither did anybody else. Nobody wanted to play with Isaiah Thomas. I, I, I don't think it, the way that the bad boy Pistons were perceived throughout the league, it's not just that they pissed off the Chicago Bulls. They pissed off everybody. Yeah. And when you're, you know, if you're the star, you're the leader of that team. You're going to have that placed on your shoulders. You know, that reputation is going to follow you. And, and Isaiah was right. You know, in, in his mind, he's sitting there trying to say, OK, I, I, everything on my resume, I hit every criteria. I hit every mark that I should. But when it comes to, you know, cultivating a, a rapport amongst all of these egos anyway, all these over the top superstars, how are they going to react with him? And you got to believe, and it's easy again, you know, as we're talking about who is the focal point, who is the star, it's Jordan. 
that's going to be positive and negative. So he is going to catch the the heat for this thing. Is is this part of the reason that Isaiah is not remembered as fondly as some of the guys that played on the dream team? Just kind of that out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I would say one of those things. I mean, if you're kind of written off and away from it, uh, I mean, he has had some runs there, but you know, in later years, he's not getting that rub. You don't see him working on the analyst teams or being a part of those, those big conglomerates when they're bringing in stars for the finals and things like that. Or, I mean, you regularly, I mean, now you, it's not uncommon that you would see, uh, you know, Jordan and Barkley and Johnson, you know, magic all, you know, rubbing elbows, having a good time. They, they've known to do that. They play cards together. They'll go gambling, they'll go golfing. And he's just not included in that. It had to piss Isaiah off. There's that, that the iconic photo shoot, with Bird and Magic and Michael, and it's kind of this real passing of the torch-like moment where Magic and Bird are just acknowledging, yeah, th- this kid's going to take it. He He's now the best player in the world. And Isaiah Thomas has got to be sitting there watching it, going, I am the only person on the face of the planet. Beat you, beat you, and I beat you. Nobody else can say that. Isaiah Thomas took down... The Boston Celtics, he took down Showtime, and he took down the Chicago Bulls. And yet, you know, it's it's like people just want to remember him as a shitty general manager for the New York Knicks, which also doesn't help his legacy. That's I even completely forgot. I was just reflecting on the player years, but you know, I, I you know, ultimately though the winners write the narrative, and looking back, that little two-year note for the Pistons has become kind of a cliff note. Yeah, you, know, really you think has. about the transition; it went from the Lakers and Celtics dynasties and rivalries to running with the Bulls, and it just so happens there was this little pit stop in there. I mean, it's like the Carter administration. But even when you talk about the Pistons, it's like people don't talk about Isaiah. They just want to talk about the bad boy thing. Like they want to talk about Bill Lambeer and they want to talk about Dennis Rodman. Oh, yeah. And they had Isaiah Thomas. And it's like, well, well, who's this Isaiah guy that nobody wants to talk about? He was really freaking good. He's probably like the number two point guard of all time. I mean, he wasn't magic, but. Yeah, magic's still the best. Greatest point guard ever. Nobody will ever convince me otherwise. Let's talk about Tony Kukoc, um, which, or Kukoc, or Kukok, or all of the other different ways that you hear it pronounced throughout this episode, which I just thought was absolutely hilarious. I was popping every time somebody would mispronounce Tony Kukoc's name. Uh, Tony Kukoc was, people thought he was going to be the next Larry Bird. And the main person that thought that was Jerry Krause. Drafted Tony Kukoc in 1990, didn't join the Bulls until 1993. He would spend 13 seasons there, but he was never Larry Bird. Uh, Rick, what do you remember about Tony Kukoc, especially the early days of Tony Kukoc, when you first heard that like the Chicago Bulls drafted this kid out of where? They played basketball over there? Well, I'd say this this is really the first memory I, that I truly have of the foreign game and the players coming to the NBA. Uh, I remember the hype, not around the draft pick, but I do remember the hype going into the Olympics that Croatia it was being hyped as, you know, they, they might not be, they might not win, but this is the next best thing to a serious threat to, to the dream team. And you, obviously you have to build up some kind, uh, you know, some kind of energy and excitement and intrigue behind that. 
Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I do remember them going out there and absolutely just taking it to him and kind of sitting back and being like, whoa, wait a minute. He ain't that fucking good. And I, and I absolutely remember because of all the hype around that. As young as I was when this thing is going on and how an eye of this entire spectacle. But, but I like in the story here, again, we're getting more to a story where we're getting different layers. And this is building more towards the frustrations building and brewing inside of one Scotty Pippen. Yeah. I think the, the most important statement that I said there was Jerry Krause thought Tony Kukoc was the Jerry Krause guy. Jerry Krause was super high on Tony Kukoc and then Michael and Scotty played against Tony Kukoc and they instructed the rest of the dream team. He's ours. Who'd you say? Michael and Scotty. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said. Uh, I thought you said Sean and Kevin. <laughs> now it, it it was absolutely incredible to hear Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen talk about Tony Kukoc in that Barcelona Olympics because they were just like, "Oh, this is Jerry Krause's golden child. This is the future of the Chicago Bulls. We're gonna go out there and we're gonna whip this kid's ass." Now I understand why Kukoc played so bad that first game. And this is why, you know, and I, from his perspective, you know, he's like, I had no idea this was going on. I, I'm more dealing with civil war. Yeah. I'm country. trying to stay alive. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I were, I'm over here because this is what's best for my family at, at this ultimate time of uncertainty. I know I'm, I can make much more here. And that's crazy in itself to hear that. Yeah. Right. He's able to, you know, the bank account is more financially stable in Croatia, more ridden Croatia. Making more money than Scottie Pippen was in Croatia. How, how truly bad is the south side of Chicago? Here's how bad it is. <laughs> it is better to opt out and stay in a more ridden <laughs> civil war of Croatia than it is to make that move. And that's what Kukoc does here. And he has no idea what's happening. Yeah, they just beat and, him up, embarrassed but, him. But, but I do like in the documentary, and I do remember this to his credit, that he would come back, he would bounce back here. Yeah, inside of the metal game, Kukoc played much better. Kind of like he had just adjusted the speed of his game is really what it came down to. But more importantly, he earned Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen's respect, and that's what paved the way for him to finally come over in 1993 and play 13 seasons with the Chicago Bulls. And two, you got a sense as in a way it wasn't. And they said, you know, this isn't personal. This is because we don't like Krause. Yeah, it was personal. It just had nothing to do with Tony Kukoc. Well, and I think in their own way for them to break him in that first meeting and then for him to respond like that was, okay. you're no longer one of his. Now you're us. You're going to you are going to run with the real bulls, the driving force, the boys that are getting done on the hardwood. And, you know, screw the little man upstairs to, to kind of bring this back around to Kobe. I, I heard this incredible story about Kobe Bryant in one of the Olympics um, where Spain was kind of the Croatia of the time because they had the Gasol brothers. And of course, Powell and Kobe played together in Los Absolutely Angeles. Absolutely remember that. And the first play of the game, Kobe goes and dunks on Powell and he like stands over him just like. No, we ain't teammates today, man. I'm bringing it to you. And Powell was beat right then and there. Like, just they just absolutely destroyed Spain. And it was just because Kobe had that same kind of instinct. Just like, yeah, I know how good Powell is. I'm going to embarrass him on the first goddamn play of the game. And very, very Jordan esque. 
Let's uh, let, let's talk about some of this political stuff before we throw it over to the break and get into episode six. Republicans buy sneakers, too. Uh, th- this was a huge chunk of the documentary. I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's just not interesting to me. Um, because as they lay this thing out, we remember that line. It was one of the most like attributed quotes to Michael Jordan throughout our childhood. Republicans buy sneakers, too. And there was a lot of people that just that rubbed them the wrong way. And Jordan even says, like, I said that in jest to like Horace and Scotty on the back of a bus and somebody heard it and it immediately reminded me of Kevin Smith. Yeah. Fucking Silent Bob. Silent Bob tells this story about Tim Burton and when Planet of the Apes, the Tim Burton awful movie came out, there's a shot of like the Statue of Liberty laying on the beach, like just the head. And Kevin had done that same visual in a comic book many years earlier and they asked him and they're like you feel like tim burton ripped you off and he's like talking with one of his buddies at the new york paper and he's like yeah i'm pissed off about it i might sue the motherfucker you know and the next day the paper comes out and it's like kevin smith is very pissed off about this he's contemplating suing tim burton and it, it was said in jest like ha 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 where's the lol at the end of the sentence you know And that's very much what Republicans buy sneakers too was, but it became this whole platform where he refused to endorse Harvey Natt down in the uh, Senate election down in North Carolina, even though he donated to the campaign. There's all kinds of talk about Michael Jordan or not Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali um, uh, Brown when he was there in Cleveland, Jim Brown. And Michael even says, you know, I do commend Muhammad Ali for standing up for what he believed in. I never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. I wasn't a politician. I was playing my sport, focused on my craft. Was that selfish? Probably. No, it wasn't selfish at all. He's a freaking basketball player. I think the entire world would be so much better off if all these damn athletes would shut up about politics, if Hollywood would shut up about politics and leave it to the politicians. Go make your little movie. Go play basketball. Go play football. I don't want to hear it. I do not give a shit about your goddamn political opinion. And the only thing that they do is piss off half of the fan base. Well, I don't absolutely. And I do. I, I I'm going to say I'm like 90% with you on this one. Uh, Cause I do, you know, it's as, you know, being a part of the society, being an American, it is part of, you know, of our rights. It was what makes us so great as a country is that we can form those opinions and we do have candidates that we can back, but it's their right. If they want to do it, great. But there's no reason that they should be forced into and, and, and doing that, it. No, and that's, and that's where I completely agree with you. And that's what's so refreshing about how Michael handled this is it's what what drives me insane is okay you know it, for him making that donation and him voting that is him expressing his right as an american to support a candidate or any kind of agenda or movement what irritates me to no end and it is especially true today as we are looking to these individuals on these different platforms of and it's not like social activism it's a professional sports and movie and TV and the entertainment genre, we're looking to them to, to dictate and guide these agendas without really laying out true, you know, true facts or, 
looking at the issues, it's, oh, people will just follow you in droves. We need you. We're going to feed you these lines so that you can feed them to your masses. And now we're creating them. You know, we're just growing this this flock of sheep that are, you know, essentially just kind of marching off the edge of the cliff. That's what irritates the hell out of me here. Michael handled this thing perfectly, He, as he said. And what, he, what really speaks to me is Republicans, you know, buy gym shoes too. Yes, in jest, it's a joke. But what it ultimately says is, guys, I'm known for basketball and gym shoes. What the hell do I have to do with a, a race for Senate or, hell, you know, the uh, local community chairman or whatever the hell it might be? This is beyond him. That's a bigger issue. He's here to entertain and he's working at, he's doing his job that just happens to be televised around the globe. Might as well hit the Booker T music here because I'm about to get some heat. Um, so there's this revisionist history about Muhammad Ali. How people loved Muhammad Ali and oh, it was so great. He was this political activist. Go ask your grandparents about Muhammad Ali. Go ask your 90-year-old uncles who, who served in, you know, World War II about Muhammad Ali and how they felt about Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali pissed off a whole lot of people. In fact, to the day my grandfather died, if you asked him about Muhammad Ali, he would probably reply with, that draft-dodging son of a bitch. Get off of this whole, like, everybody loved Muhammad Ali. Oh, he was such a great political activist. No, that's just not true. That's not true in the slightest. And I think athletes need to kind of take a little bit of that away from Muhammad Ali, too. Like, LeBron James is absolutely no different than Michael Jordan. LeBron James could have came out and said whatever he wanted to about the whole China situation at the beginning of this season, and he didn't. He shut his fucking mouth because he wanted the Chinese buy sneakers, too. Well, I think what's what's more unique with LeBron and, and really is... There we are. Got it. There's Jordan in the background. Here we go. Uh, with LeBron, just weeks prior to that, he goes to social media with an extended comment saying how it is. It's 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 part of now in our society. It's his it's his right or his duty that he must speak out on these social, you know, just social issues and, and become a, a beacon and voice for the people. And this is when he's out there. He's, you know, just bashing everything. Hashtag Trump. But as soon as it was hitting him in his pocket and hitting his financials, nowhere to be seen with that China issue. Yeah. And, and in fact, his only comment was, you know, basically, I have no comment. Hypocritical prick. Well, because they both affected his they both affected his dollar. Absolutely. Well, you bring up the beacon and the voice of the people. So I guess let's go ahead. Let's throw it over to the break. And hear what the beacon and voice of the people are having for breakfast. Of course, I'm talking about Broaster's Coffee, the Vince Russo, the true beacon and voice of the people. We'll be right back to talk about episode six. Bro, if you're a real coffee lover, then you've got to try Broaster's limited edition Vince Russo Bro Coffee. Available right now at www.thebroasters.com. This limited edition coffee is fresh roasted weekly and shipped directly to your door. You will love the Nicaraguan blend with roasted chocolatey notes when you smell it. Get your Vince Russo Bro Coffee today at thebroasters.com and follow them at Coffee Broasters today on Twitter. Enjoy the best coffee today, bro. From Broasters. 
Vince Russo Brand, and Hameen Media Group. Hit me! Yeah. Time to talk some gambling when it comes to Michael Jordan. That's really what episode six was all about. Uh, gambling takes center stage. Oh, yeah, and he plays basketball, too. But it seems like there's just as much golf and cards and pitching coins with security throughout this episode. Yeah, you know, the, the deeper issue here is, you know, people starting to to see through the be like Mike and, and wanting to break that down. And they're looking to grab on anything for a guy that doesn't have a life and is looking for some kind of release. My favorite quote throughout this entire episode was at the very, very end when Jordan's like, you know, if I had to do it all again, I wouldn't have been a role model. Boy, you sound an awful lot like Charles Barkley, don't you? You remember that I am not a role model commercial that got Charles Barkley so much heat? Barkley was smart. Barkley saw this coming a mile away because he saw how they had treated Michael, even though they were in the same draft class. Barkley had to work for his superstardom, whereas Michael just got it day one being in Chicago. Uh, That's what really, really stood out to me throughout this episode. We have to stop putting these athletes on these freaking pedestals because guess what? They're not perfect human beings. And guess what? You listening to this show, me and your ear holes, you're not fucking perfect either. Quit expecting the Hollywood elite and the pro sports elite to be these perfect people. Like, oh my gosh, you're never going to believe this. Mick Jagger was a terrible human being. Well, no shit. He's a fucking rock star. It's the bigger issue here. And this is it's nothing that was new to the times in the 90s. It's nothing new to today. I mean, this is human nature is that we're so we really we are. We hate everything in our own faults, but we don't want to come to those truth, those realizations. So we're going to chastise and punish what we can find in others. I, I disagree with we don't, one we thing don't want you to have said. to live. We don't have to live in our own realities if we can go and attack others and people. And it's just also natural that people are jealous of success. But I, I disagree with one thing you said there. This was new to the 90s, because when you look back at the 80s, did we treat magic this way? Do we treat bird this way? No, we didn't. And what changed the media cycle when magic and bird were at their peak, you had three channels. You had ABC, NBC, CBS. A little bit later, Fox came along. By the time Michael's there, you have ESPN. You have the 24-7 news cycle. Like, do, do you remember hearing the story about Larry Bird punching somebody out in a freaking local Boston bar during the finals? No, people don't talk about that. No, I, I think the attempts were there. That is the human nature. They're going after that. I mean, that's just 101 of how they're going to handle their business. But on the flip of that, it was easier to control those voices and to cut them off at times. Uh, where now, now anybody that makes an accusation is immediately put up on this pedestal. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're you're guilty upon accused in the country now because of all these different platforms. But unless going, you're Joe Biden. <laughs> Sorry, had to get that in there. But even well, that's just unfair, right? I mean, you can't attack him. Completely unfair. Even going back to the days of the first elections in this country. You had Washington, who were, you know, his right hand men in the war and all that. Now that they don't see eye to eye on what they believe, how a free country should be run. They're the ones trying to open up sub newspapers to bash him at the time. 
You just had the real money was the driving force behind Washington that could squash all of that out. Well, another perfect example on the other opposite end, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. People look at JFK and they're just like, oh, he was this great American icon. Guess what? JFK was a fucking prick. JFK was a guy that was sneaking Marilyn Monroe into the basement of the White House so he could go bang her in the same fucking house where Jackie was sleeping. <laughs> it, it, right, yesterday I was watching a... Uh, I actually asked you about this because Michael Jordan was in this episode of South Park. It was the sex addict one. And they're all, you know, it's this big... Now, now what in the world would make a, a man, a grown man with a lot of money, want to go sleep with a lot of young, beautiful women? <laughs> crazy right and you yeah you have like all the average joes like all the you know randy and and kyle's dad all that and they're like oh my this is the worst thing ever why would you do you know it's like they're all giving each other that look like i would never do that uh-huh and this is the same case when you see oh my god that is the worst that is the worst thing that anyone could ever possibly know that's human nature we all have those flaws Sorry, no one just cares about yours because you're one of us schmuck losers. <laughs> you know, we're not up here, you know, on the big screen or, you know, raking in the millions or having people, you know, give up their half of their damn income to invest in us. Well, really, the worst thing that anybody can do to another human being is rat them the fuck out. And it sure seems like Michael Jordan holds Horace Grant as responsible for ratting him the fuck out. Let's talk about the Jordan rules book a little bit. This was interesting. Michael just straight throws Horace under the bus. Like he is convinced that this information came from Horace Grant because Horace Grant and Sam Shaw are very, very good friends. Horace Grant still to this day disputes that he ever gave Shaw any information whatsoever. Rick, have you read the Jordan rules? I have not. And I, I've seen like some, you know, some snippets from it and all this. It was one of those things, you know, going back, I, I was never interested in in that side of, you know, them attacking Jordan this way. Which, not which that I was fair. an over the top fan. I just I, I just didn't buy into this media BS even back then. You know, I didn't want to hear the, the dirt sheet ask, you know, stuff of the time around somebody like him. Uh, but this was, I have to admit, in this documentary, this is the first time that I heard that this was Horace's doing. Um, I have read The Jordan Rules, and I started rereading it again the other night. There is no way that Horace Grant was the only source for this book. There were several people inside of the Bulls' office, coaching staff, and players all the way down to the security guards that Jordan's back there flipping coins with that had to be part of this book. There's no way that this is all Horace Grant. There were several people involved here. And even when it came to Horace, you know, I'm wondering if it really was, because they did have that close tie, which if, if they have a close tie, that it's safe to say that they have a circle that is kind of close. So even if Horace is talking to, you know, if I'm talking to you, about something and I let something kind of, you know, off the cuff to you. Uh, then later on, you go have a conversation with MSG. Something might get spun into the conversation there. And then he goes and talks to Big Ray and then Billy, you know, Billy Ray. So by the time that we've got this, you know, telephone, telegraph, telewrestler, whatever it might be, you know, you're playing this game of telephone. However, it gets spun and now it's making this way into the book. What's really interesting you point out there, Jargo, is this could be people from the front office who, if, the head you think Jerry Krause wasn't a fucking source for this goddamn book? You're insane. 
Yeah, or if it's not directly from him so he doesn't take that heat, it's a secretary that he's saying, hey, man, this would be a terrible thing. Or, you know, or he's taking care of someone in his camp to get this information out there. One of the things that, that this reminds me of, and Jim Rome had regularly had this individual on. He was in the witness pre- uh, protection program. He was a mobster turned informant. And he was he has been telling Rome repeatedly, and I think this is even one in one of his books that he released, is – when you're looking for to control a situation, and in this case, they were talking about fixing games. This would be about digging up dirt. You're not going to pay the players for this. You pay everyone around it. It's yep. so like if you're going to fix a game, you're not paying the quarterback or the line or anyone there. You pay the officials because they don't make the damn money. You pay someone minuscule that could help you know, position a ball differently. You're paying these small sums to influence the game instead of going after these superstars where you are going to get all this scrutiny placed on you. The other thing that's kind of lost throughout this entire time period is this was the beginning of the TMZ generation. This was the beginning of those TV mass media dirt sheets. I mean, that's really what they were. They were freaking dirt sheets. And that's what TMZ is. That's what Extra is. That's what Entertainment Tonight is. But this was really the big launch of that whole investigative sports reporting. I, he was on a mission to take down Michael Jordan. As, as you talk about, look at what we've got here. We have got this boom of media. Cable is booming. I mean, this was, I mean, I remember cable in the 80s. Remember the big box? Oh, yeah. And you had like 50 or something channels. And you had the red pay-per-views over here. I mean, it went from that to now we're up to like 200 channels. And a quarter of those are news outlets. And they're all fighting for that edge. What can we do? What is going to be that rating? How, you know, that ultimate grab. And that's going after these stars and exposing them. This isn't just Michael Jordan. They're doing it to the president of the United States around here. Oh, Willie's getting blowjobs up in the White House through this 90s run. Yeah. You know, we got an impeachment talks and all this going on. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And, of course, the whole thing starts. The whole thing really blows up, I guess I should say, was when – Jordan and the Bulls are down two games to none to the New York Knicks and they go to Atlantic City before the next game. I mean, that's what really set this whole thing off. And that's also what set off the silence is golden era of Michael Jordan, where he's just like, you know what? I'm done talking about this. I'm going out. I'm trying to win basketball games and it doesn't matter where I go. All you sons of bitches ask me the same goddamn questions. I give you the same goddamn answers. I just want to go play basketball. And so Michael quit talking to the press very much like Kobe did after the whole Denver thing. Like you can only answer the same question so many goddamn times before you're just like, shut the fuck up. Well, and it's the repetitive. They, they keep it. They keep just pounding on you, hoping to break you at some point. So you do say something off the cuff that they could again, can they can spin this and go run with it and exploit that situation for another six months or whatever the case might be. So at this point, he says, no, I'm, I'm through. You're cut off. Uh, until he would open up, but he was very selective. This is when he became very selective in who from that media he would trust. He would talk to Ahmad Rashad, and that's about it. Outside of that, maybe a handful of others. Yeah, but that was that was the closest one. That became kind of the voice, which was, was great for Rashad. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he's not objecting. Um, but one thing that really gets kind of glossed over is the New York Knicks. 
Um, the New York Knicks had basically taken up the mantle as the bad boy Pistons at that period of time. And they're going out there and they they just beat up Michael Jordan. Those Knicks teams were incredibly physical. And it's a damn shame they didn't win more. But unfortunately, John Starks was their second best player and John Starks couldn't shoot. Uh, I mean, they really were. I mean, they were just built. They were, they were rugged. They were tough. They were raw. Oh, they were nasty, man. Anthony Mason and Oakley and Ewing Starks was a little spitfire that like probably should have been on the freaking corner in Brooklyn buying a pack of cigarettes and then going home to beat his wife. I mean, that's the impression that I had of John Starks. I mean, to me, they, they summed up pretty much you would envision or experience for an extended trip on a New York subway. Yeah. Yeah. John Starks, man, that freaking kid. My God. Dirty, hard, dirty, smelled like piss. And and they were at the root of like all of this. I mean, even like Reggie Miller versus the New York Knicks, you know, like it, those Knicks teams were just nasty. They were the bad boy Pistons of the late 80s. I, that That's really what they had become. It was interesting to me. Uh, the, the comparison that I kind of drew is obviously immediately you make that connection with the Pistons. But for what they accomplished or what they didn't, maybe reminded me a lot of the team we saw earlier in the trailblazers just never really could get over that yeah but new york was that hump they weren't nearly as talented as portland was. no I, I just talk about just being able to get over that hump I yeah mean, no that that part is absolutely they, i mean ultimately they went to they only went to one right did they did they get to one against uh no i don't think they made it to no, one i think they, they were always made it it was just to the finals was as far as they made it yep. yeah because you had orlando and uh the pacers yep Orlando and Indiana in that in that little break there when the Bulls were when Jordan was on hiatus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the other thing that's interesting about those teams is Pat Riley. Like when they brought in Pat Riley, do you suppose that that's the brand of basketball they thought they were bringing to New York? Well, I think what you realize is. I don't think you're buying a certain brand. You're buying, you're bringing in a coach that can adapt, stay liquid. You got to adjust to what's around you. And he's looking at, okay, what was a strategy philosophies that could take this team down? You go back and you look at what they did inside, of, you know, in Detroit, you build that kind of system. And that's what they adopted there in New York. As I said, it kind of embodied it. It represented the city, a franchise. And if it was, the Bulls, if it was the upstart magic that we would see, if it was the Pacers, I mean, they were there to physically demand and beat you up. That's the basketball they brought. I will say this uh, about, <laughs> about Riley. Man, he is one slick-looking son of a gun, man. Man. That <laughs> he, just looks, he still looks cool as hell today, man. Yeah, yeah. He, he just he screams like New York mobster, you know? To me, he's like the, the the true to life living embodiment of the most interesting man in the world kind of vibe. Yeah, right. And then to think of even what he's done in Miami, like I feel like that kind of just goes under stay of putting together that Miami hey, Heat what, team. What, what, does, what does a badass pull all the wool mobster from New York do when he retires? He goes to South Beach. He goes to South Beach. Takes his talents to South Beach. You betcha. Let's talk about the '93 Finals. Barkley and the Suns versus Michael and the Bulls. I remember this one. Oh, man. I remember this series, especially that triple OT game, game five. 
Um, that that's the game that everybody talks about. But to me, game six is the much more interesting game. Um, Charles Barkley had won the MVP that year, which pissed Michael off. And that's basically the entire series. Michael is pissed off. Um, <laughs> oh, Mike got to find something to get pissed off about. Yeah. The world is the world's against Mike. He's got to find something. Well, here. And, and the way Jordan presents it, like he's pissed off that Barkley wins the MVP. And it's like to go look at Barkley's stats that year. Barkley was playing out of his freaking mind. Oh, absolutely. But it's that's Mike right now. Poor Dan Marley. That poor bastard. He got stuck trying to guard Michael Jordan. And guess what? Dan Marley. Yeah, he was a Jerry Krause guy. Jerry Krause loved him some Dan Marley. Yeah, so how the hell does this even come about? What is Krause just like around the water cooler or sitting around the Gatorade cooler at practice? Oh, I mean, that Dan Marley guy, like all season. So this is now brewing. Some of these things, I think, you know, with this reaching for Jordan to put this chip on his shoulder, I think he was just pulling shit out of his ass at some time. Well, you know what? Would it really necessarily surprise you? Krause knows that Michael Jordan does not like him. Kraus knows that Dan Marley is going to be the guy that's going to be guarding Jordan. So every time Michael's in earshot, if you're Jerry Kraus, wouldn't you be putting over how much you love Dan Marley just to motivate Michael Jordan? Kind of pulling the puppet strings. Yes. I mean, is, isn't that a logical conclusion to draw? But no, everybody just wants to bury Jerry Kraus. What is up with the theme in the 90s with all of these teams having white guys try to stop Jordan? Yeah, and that probably not the smartest move. Um, it, this is another one of those series that just gets lost in translation because you watch the clips and you would think the Chicago Bulls just buried the Phoenix Suns. Not the case. Not the case even a little bit. That Phoenix Suns team was a real threat to Michael and the Bulls. Uh, going into that series, I think everybody wanted Phoenix to win that series because number one, they wanted to see Barkley get a ring. And number two, people are kind of over Michael Jordan and the Bulls at this point. Yeah, I, I think he, we're talking about, you know, how these you'd see movement in players. They had a, so much a fun team in Phoenix right then. They were so much fun to watch. Obviously, you you do have they were closer to the showtime. At this you, point, you have uh, you have Barkley there as your centerpiece who, you know, the round man, he is banging. And this is his greatest, you know, greatest run of his career this year. What he was able to do with the team who's kind of young. But I mean, hell, you've got Marley, Oliver Miller. You've got a, KJ. Was it Nash? KJ Nash is coming off the bench for this team, wasn't he? Was Nash there that early? I don't think he's there that early. No, he, he came at a later. It was a later here. Uh, who you had? There was so much to this team. Um, hell, I just remember you know, just right outside the window here is where my my court was when I was a kid, and it's every day you know with basketball. I got my Marley or my Barkley jersey on out there. Just not that I was rooting against the Bulls, but it was the first time that I made that move and got you know onto that bandwagon with this hot Suns team. Yeah, that Suns team was hot. I mean. To score 130 points on average in 1993 just seems insane now. I mean, they were going out there and just shooting the freaking lights out. They were the the Golden State Warriors before the Golden State Warriors were, you know, born. But, of course, the Bulls win the series in six because that's what the Bulls do. 
Um, I saw a hilarious meme the other day of Michael and Scotty like sitting on the bench laughing together. And one of them says to the other one, you know, LeBron has the, the most game seven points in history. And the other one says, what's a game seven? Those Bulls teams never went seven games. And I, I thought for sure Phoenix and Chicago was going to be a seven game series, especially after Barkley made everybody take all the window coverings off in Chicago after game five. That was just a ridiculous. Yeah, and Nash got there in 96. I was just thinking on that back end, he was there with Barkley and all them. 96. God, that's still crazy that he was there that early. But throughout all of the 93 season, you keep hearing Michael with this, how much is enough? There's a, a lot of conspiracy theories that surround Michael when he left the first time. Um, but the reality is Jordan was talking about this for most of the 93 season that he could very easily be walking away from basketball after that season, uh, which to me just kind of shoots a lot of the conspiracy theories straight to hell. Um, seven seasons, seven consecutive seasons in the league, Michael Jordan played over 3000 minutes. And then there was the Barcelona Olympics. I mean, to, to win three consecutive championships. That's basically a hundred games a year, every year. Rick, they can't do it. We, we saw golden state run into this. We saw the Lakers run into this. We saw the showtime Lakers run into this. We saw the Celtics fall into this trying to go back to back to back, whether you're successful or not. It just takes so much out of you, let alone the pressures of being Michael Jordan when you're not on the court. And I think, you know, it, it, obviously this thing is this focal point is on Jordan. But you got to believe, you know, everybody, even Pippen, you know, as the right hand mm -hmm. man is sitting there feeling these pressures. And, you, and you're right. You know, and they talk about this. OK, when you get to three, you did that. Now you have put yourself into a different class. You've raised yourself above that bar that was set there for you. I mean, this is the first three in what, since the, the Celtics of like the 60s or something like that, yeah. or early 60s at that time. A lot of, so a lot of teams a, went to three finals, but didn't win all three finals. Yes, right. You know, so to be able to do this is now you're in a league of your own. You're leading the pack when we're talking about the greatest ever. This goes back to this Jordan creating these boulders, these obstacles in his way, me versus the world. He still has that in him, but now he's really starting to see the world in not in front of him, but caving in on him, all these different pressures. And I think one of the, the scenes here that just speaks volumes to this situation is just him alone inside that hotel room, just trying to be normal and relax and kick back. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as, as people were talking about, they lose the game there in New York. We've all had this shitty, shitty fucking days at work. We're done with the world. This is no different than any of us just going off to a happy hour into a little dive bar to escape and just get away from everything. Yeah, it's just when you're Michael Jordan that translates to $10,000 a hand at Blackjack. And I can't remember who said it there in the during the series here, during the episode was, but put it in perspective for him to do that. It's like me and you going and dropping $10 on Kino. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, one quote that really stood out to me. I want to leave two years before my skills say, I can't play this game. 
I don't want to miss my time to go. A lot of players say they want to play until they can't ever play again. Patrick said one one time that they will have to carry him off the court. No one's going to carry me off the court. I want to walk off the court. A lot of people say you're going to miss basketball. I'm not sure I'm going to miss it. I don't think I'm going to miss it. He was right. If he was wrong, we would look back on the Wizards years much more fondly. But we don't because the game had passed Michael by. Did Michael have to walk away when he did? No. But he was right. If he would have just walked away then and there was never the Wizards part of the Michael Jordan story, don't you think he would have been better off? And I think, you know, really you have to reach for that. If we go to, I'm going to say, you know, eight out of ten individuals and we talk about the last days, the last memories of Michael Jordan, you know, you ask people, what was that last moment? What was the last jersey? I mean, It's the shot against Utah. Right. So they're rarely going to mention. uh, Wasn't it one of one of your girls had some kind of project that came home and that was like a question on there? Mm -hmm. And they had acknowledged that he ended his career in Chicago. And you and I, and this is going back when we started podcasting, almost three years ago. Yeah. And it's like, wait, we both were like, no, 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 no. That's not right. That's not right. That's just not true. Um, One other comparison that I wanted to make before we kind of wrap up this week's show. We're living in quarantine now. The coronavirus has taken over the world and people are starting to get awful restless because, you know, they can't leave their house. That's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has been living in quarantine for like 40 fucking years. Throw the guy a goddamn break. He wants to go play golf for a million dollars a hole? Let him. He wants to go play $10,000 a hand blackjack? Fucking let him. Michael Jordan would probably kill to go to the grocery store. When do you suppose the last time Michael Jordan went to the grocery store was? Oh, I mean, it's it's impossible. If we see there in the series, I mean, it's well documented. You immediately, you've got media on the floor and they're talking about those, those little moments where he's got, all right, now he's got two minutes to breathe and he's got to talk to the press or he's got to go see the trainer. Got two minutes to breathe. Now he's got, uh, the extended press. It's like 10 minutes between the end of the game and, and the time the press conference is over. And then you're being mobbed at the hotel. You know, if word gets out that he is going to a golf course, there's people everywhere. There's paparazzi. There's fans just ready to bombard him. I mean, there is no escape from this. Yeah, he's Michael Jordan. And you've even got to wonder, how the hell did he get to Atlantic City without all this happening here? I mean, you've got to go under the cover of darkness. Right? Yeah. It's crazy, man. You know, one thing that always, I mean, it's just kind of stupid spinoff, but I always feel bad for those guys that they have to shop for clothes. No doubt, right? Of course, now in the in the era of Amazon, it's probably just everything's delivered. You still got to have all. I mean, it's not like they got the the seam length or whatever on those damn things. I mean, you imagine like somebody like Yokozuna trying to go get clothes or Big Show or. Oh, it's why Andre? It's probably why like Andre's always been in like photoed in like three outfits. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about episodes seven and eight. What's coming up next week, Huckleberry? I, I kind of got a feeling how this is going to go now. I think episode seven is going to be Michael leaving and Michael returning. And then episode eight is going to be the Sonics. Episode nine is going to be Utah. And episode 10, of course, is Utah again in the end. 
I'm looking forward to uh, the Sonics episode. I am. And we're, we're talking about the energy and maybe the, the swing and the fan base and all that with Phoenix. Uh, you're talking about young, trendy, exciting. That is the Sonics team that we're about to get here. Everyone was fully expecting and I, I think ready to embrace them as the heir to the throne to replace the Bulls here. I'm also hoping that we get some Orlando. I, I was going to say, I, I want to see a little Orlando in there. I'm hoping in the time away that we at least get a, a good half of a show or 45 minutes dedicated to the other bit players, the other, you know, not ready for primetime players, if you will. Um, speaking of Orlando, um, I, I assume there will be a whole lot of Horace Grant when they talk about Orlando because Horace ended up going to the magic. Do you think one of the reasons they brought him there is because of, he was known as that tremendous locker room leader. Do you think Horace Grant is let go from Chicago? If the Jordan rules never comes out. Do you think that's the reason that he, they didn't chose not to resign Horace Grant? I think there was something there too. I mean, of these guys holding this grudge. And, and now when we talk about how they plant seeds throughout this series, you go back to when you're talking about things with Horace and they had maybe showing concerns for him because he was showing weakness uh, against the Pistons. Yeah. You know, where Jordan would regularly like Scotty didn't didn't budge. He didn't flinch and they that's they they didn't have us. But you have Horace that's trying, you know, that wasn't, you know, was asking the refs for help or crying a little bit. So they kind of are planting those seeds. Maybe we do get this ultimate uh, sort of Judas moment for Horace Grant on his way out. Hey, you're mentioning it. That Orlando team should be a lot of fun. Hell, I, there's a 30 for 30 on them that is absolutely incredible that talks about how everything kind of imploded for them. Well, how about this for a, a little bit of story inside of the story? Rivera had brought this up to me. Little too sweet. Rodman's getting involved with the NWO during the run of this last dance. Yeah. Well, I wonder right. if they'll make any mention here. Uh, well, and also Carl Malone. I mean, because the rivalry that was on the court carried over to WCW. DDP and Carl Malone versus Rodman and Hogan. Yes. And that match would happen shortly after that finals. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's going to wrap things up for this week's show. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, please hit that subscribe button. Then visit the other platform you may not be listening to, whether it be the HTM Podcast Network online, hittingthemarks.com, or Hameen Media online, hackerhameen.podbean.com. Huckleberry and I will be right back here in your ear holes next week for episode seven and eight. Looking forward to that. What are you sitting there shaking your damn head about? <laughs> MSG just messaged me with something and I guess I just like lost time like lost control of space and time when you said we'll be back in your ear holes I thought you were going to hit a plug for HTM (laughs) fantastic Uh, Huckleberry you just dropped a new uh, episode of uh, the hot tag Uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about that and uh, who, who your special guest was on that episode because I hear the guys are just a fucking brilliant man Oh, yes, uh, Mr. Jackson Breeze, a co-founder. You motherfucker. And, and do it all with the, uh, the Heartland Wrestling Association and the tremendous impact that they had on the world of professional wrestling. Uh, right in the heat of it, all the attitude here, the HWA, I mean, believe it's not, on their shows you could have, at one time, WWF, WCW, and ECW star. I mean, that was unheard of at the time. 
uh, and in their work as a development territory for WCW and WWF, WWE. Uh, but also on that show, you're, you're saying dropping later today. It's already up. It's already posted. I just got to find a way to get it out to the masses because I am quarantined with inside the quarantine of the Facebook universe. Thanks, uh, but Eric. we do, but we do have a very, very special guest host who's going to be talking all sorts of of putting over why New Japan is so much better than the Western Wrestling Ring of Honor. Talking about his his love and admiration for the WWE universe and all sorts of good stuff. Michael Jargo. Yeah, there's there, there's a couple f bombs on that one. Might want to check that one out. Fun episode. Um, I got nothing going on because, well, you know, Destino still on hold. As, as we wait for Billy Ray Valentine to lift the ban on New Japan Pro Wrestling. So I will talk to you back here next week, and we'll go running with the Bulls a couple more times here, Huckleberry. We're, we're about halfway through now. Damn it. Somehow I have to watch Money in the Bank to get ready for the Monday locker room. And this. Oh, shit. Oh, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. Luckily, my new job on the locker room is just to ask questions. Hey, there you <laughs> so go. I have to know what happened. Enjoy Money in the Bank, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk to you next week right here, Running with the Bulls. See you on the flip. infidels i've greenlit my latest cell and it's the war on morons podcast that's right the world's full of morons but i've sent jay and anisa to declare war on them from the stupid criminals to those florida man stories you love and the other idiots of hollywood and dc these new homie soldiers speak the truth the stupidity in a fun and comical manner each week these two will be bringing on friends and all these crazy characters to give you the punk rock comedy news show you didn't even know that you needed but you have it now that you're under quarantine you will listen infidels and that's right there's a bit of uncertainty every week from the live hotline so you never know who's going to call into the show <laughs> so plant your flag in the sand grab your friends and suit up because the war on morons has commenced infidels visit them now and subscribe at the war on morons dot podbean dot com yolo <laughs>